this morning is April 24th. It's Sunday morning. Our topic is uh, going to come right out of John 11, and it's going to have to do with the events surrounding Lazarus uh, and the resurrection that occurs here. I don't really have a title for the message. We'll do that right afterwards. But I do want to tell you that there are some very familiar themes that have been repeating in John. And you know how in a classroom when a teacher repeats something, they repeat it for emphasis so that you will come away with an understanding? Does anybody remember what the mission statement of the book of John is? It's in John 20, and it's verse 31. It says, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. John wrote down the events of the book of John for one reason, that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ or the Anointed One, and that in believing that He's the Anointed One, you would come to Him so that you would have life. The problem introduced in the beginning of of the Bible is that death has entered the world. The solution that John presents throughout the book is Jesus is life for the world. Death came through one man, one man who sinned, and life comes through one man who refused to sin and had the power of life. That is the message of the book of John. That's what he wanted you to know about Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, the Anointed One. Anointed. Anointed means divinely enabled for a task. Jesus was divinely enabled for a specific task to bring life to the world, to all who would call upon Him. That is Jesus' ministry. Now, I know as we began to cover John, I told you in John 1.18 that Jesus came to reveal the Father, that He came to teach you about the Father because He's a perfect picture of the Father. Well, He did that as He brought the world life. So now we're going to pick up in John 11. Uh, and as I read this, I'm going to refer back to some other events. Uh, John 11, starting in verse 1. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Now, In the beginning of this chapter, John refers to an event that may be somewhat of a mystery to you. If you lived in China and you didn't have a Bible, and the only thing that you had ever heard was the book of John, maybe somebody hand-wrote it. You know, there are places in the world right now where there are no Bibles and the copies you have would be because somebody heard it being read on a radio or something and wrote it down and passed it around. If you only had the book of John, this would be a confusing statement. This Mary is the same one who poured perfume on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. Why would that be a confusing statement? Because in John 1, it doesn't occur. In John 2, it doesn't occur. Neither does it occur in John 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, or 10. He's referring to an event he hasn't written about. Isn't that a bit odd? If I write you a letter... And I say, now Matthew, this Bobby that I'm talking about is the same Bobby that lived in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. It would presuppose that Matt had some knowledge of that, wouldn't it? Well, how would that work? John's referring to a woman because he is writing this many years after the events and the stories have gone out all over the world. 
You know, we could be talking about Bo Jackson, right? Anybody remember who Bo Jackson was? Bo knows. Bo had a Nike contract. He played several sports. Uh, at 240 pounds, ran the 40-yard dash faster than any human alive at the time. How did you know which Bo Jackson I was talking about? I just described the events. That's how you know it wasn't Bo Jackson the plumber who lived next to you. Or Bo Jackson somebody else. You knew by the actions they performed. There are several Marys mentioned in the Bible. There's Mary of Salome. There's Mary the mother of Jesus. Uh, Lots of Marys mentioned in the Bible. John says the Mary that we're talking about is the one who anointed Jesus' feet. Turn with me to Matthew 26 and I want to read you something. Matthew 26. If you're in the Thompson chain, that's page 1122. Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. Starting in uh, verse 6. You remember when we started reading John 11, they were in a certain town? The town was Bethany. Uh, Bethany, I, I probably should have done some slides for you on this. Bethany is right by Jerusalem. It's less than two miles away. You can walk from the old city of Jerusalem to Bethany. It's up on the Mount of Olives. In fact, most pictures of Jerusalem that you've ever seen that show that dome of the rock, that horrible monstrosity there for the Muslims, are taken from the vicinity of Bethany back towards uh, Jerusalem. Okay? Um, y'all Matthew 26? 26 verse 6. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of a man known as Simon the leper, isn't it interesting Jesus was not ashamed to go into the home of a leper? It doesn't matter how dirty you think you are. Jesus was more than willing to associate with people of low character. In this time period, a Jew was forbidden to be in the same room with a leper. In fact, lepers wore bells on their garments to warn people that when they were coming around a corner or something, you wouldn't accidentally touch them. If you heard the bells in the marketplace, you'd go the other way because leprosy was thought to be a contagious disease and something that was unclean and no Jew wanted to touch them. But Jesus was different. Jesus, in fact, healed ten lepers one time. Jesus realized that when He touched somebody, He had the ability to make them clean because He was the one that God had sent. It doesn't matter to me what you've done in your lifetime what you think you're guilty of, touch from Jesus and make you clean. It'll fix you. And Jesus is not ashamed, though He's righteous, to come and dwell with you, though you're not righteous. Okay, so they're in a home of a man known as Simon the leper. A woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste? they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will have with you, you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. I tell you the truth, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has been done, or what she has done, will also be told in memory of her. That's recorded in Mark 14 as well. It's also recorded in John 12, the next chapter we get to. So when John begins to tell this story, and he says, now we're in Bethany, and by the way, that's where Mary and Martha live, and this is the same Mary who anointed Jesus with oil. This was a story that had gone out from 30 A.D., around the time that happened, 33 A.D., 
throughout everywhere the gospel was told as they got to the week of the Passion, as they got to the week of the Passover in their telling of the God story or the gospel, they always included, and Mary had anointed Jesus with oil to prepare Him for the burial that was to come. She understood that Jesus was to die and that He was to be resurrected. Now, why would she understand that? Well, we find those events in John 11. But the reason John refers to it is because people were aware of this Mary. The same way that if I say, George Washington, the guy who chopped down the cherry tree, you know who I'm talking about. This was an event that in people's minds was associated with Mary. Y'all with me so far? Now, Jesus called it a beautiful thing and said that she had prepared him for burial. Why is that so earth-shattering? Why is that so odd? Because although Jesus has been talking about dying and being resurrected, most have not understood it. Although Jesus has talked about laying His life down for His friends and all of those things, most have not understood it. They saw the resurrection as a faraway event that all Israel would experience. And they didn't understand what was necessary to prove that Jesus was the one who was the resurrection. But Mary had special unique knowledge. Let's start back in John 11 and we'll try to read through now. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This Mary, whose, mo- whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is God's glory... It is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. There's a pattern in Jesus' life that you can see. You remember in John 9, they came to Jesus and said, Hey, this guy was born blind. Now, why did this happen? Is he a sinner or was it his parents who sinned? Does anybody remember how Jesus responded? I taught a whole message on this. He said, Neither. This is so that God's glory might be displayed in his life. Jesus had a way of looking at every obstacle that faced him, every problem that was there, and seeing it as an opportunity for God's power to be displayed. Well, now Jesus hears that a friend of his, somebody he admittedly loves, is sick. And everybody's upset. I mean, you would think he would rush right to him. Jesus does no such thing. He simply sees an opportunity for God's power to be displayed. Christians, there's a lot we can learn from this in our lives. How many times when you hear a negative report does fear creep into your life immediately? How many times when something negative happens do we immediately think the worst? You hear there's going to be a layoff on your job and you begin thinking that you're going to lose your house, you're going to lose your car, your kids aren't going to be able to eat. All of this false evidence that the devil is presenting to you appears to be real. The way that Jesus approached every problem, every time there was an obstacle laid before Him was, wow, here's a chance for everybody to see how great my Father is. If Christians would learn to take up the attitude of Christ, which Philippians tells us to do, if we would learn to take upon us the very attitude and nature of Christ, which is what we say we do when we call ourselves Christians, this would not be the case. You'd look outside and say, wow, my car's broken down. This is going to be an opportunity for the love and power of God to be displayed. Wow, they told me that the baby in my womb might be in danger. This is going to be an opportunity for God's power 
to be displayed. They told me so-and-so was going to die. Wow, well, we have an opportunity here for God's power to be displayed. The problem with the church is we have a form of godliness. You know, people wear robes, they have stained glass, steeples on the doors, and they carry Bibles around, have Christian t-shirts and neat little bumper stickers, but we lack the power of God in our lives. Jesus said, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can speak to a mountain, tell it to be removed into the sea, and it will be obedient to you. One time the disciples were trying to cast out a demon out of a man's son who often threw the child into fire and into water and tried to kill him. And they said, Jesus, why couldn't we cast this out? In fact, because they couldn't, Mark records that the man's father comes to Jesus and says, if you can cast this demon out. And Jesus said, if I can? With God, all things are possible. Because of the disciples' lack of faith, not only could they not cast it out, but people around began to think maybe Jesus can't. The people who are associated with Him can't do it, so maybe Jesus can't. When the world looks at Christianity, they see the failures of Christianity, the horrors done in the name of Jesus, and they begin to associate it with Jesus. See, when we don't act like the power of God is available, when we don't view problems as a chance to show God's overcoming power, the world begins to think Jesus is not who He says He is. In Jesus' life, not only did He view this as an opportunity for God's power to be displayed, He took an opportunity to let it get just a little worse than it was. See, He showed up with that blind man at an appointed time. How about not just the blind man? Do you remember in John 5, there's another guy? He's by the pool of Siloam. How long had He been there? 38 years. Why do you think the book of John includes... Somebody who had been lame for 38 years being healed. Somebody who had been born blind and now was an adult of age being healed. Why do you think the Bible would include something like that? It doesn't matter how long you've been in the position you're in. With a word from Jesus, you can leave it. That's why John includes this. There's a pattern in the book of John over and over and over confronted with a problem that has been there forever that cannot be solved. But Jesus looked at it simply as an opportunity for God's power to be displayed. And He's doing this to teach something particular. He really wants to show that these obstacles are an opportunity for God's power to be displayed. But why? Well, in John 9, we see that He did it to show that the power of sin that was in the world could be overcome. That it could be overcome with the power of God. In John 11, we're going to see that it shows specifically He's the one who has power over death. Do you know what happens immediately after John 11? A woman comes and anoints Jesus for burial. Why? From John 12 forward, there's 21 chapters in John, from John 12 forward, we're dealing with the last week of Jesus' life. See, each one of these events that John wrote down, and why did he write them down? So that you would believe. And that in believing these events you would see that Jesus has the power of life. That's why He wrote them down. These events are leading up to one thing. Jesus is going to lay down His life, which looks like a huge obstacle, a real problem, to see the power of God displayed. See, as He lays down His life and He takes it up again, He proves beyond any shadow of a doubt He was the one who had the power of life. That's why the book of John was written. Do you all understand where we're going with that? Well, let's see what happens. 
Starting in verse 7. Then the disciples, then he said to the disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you are going back there? Jesus answered, are there not twelve hours of daylight? Incidentally, this is a quote also from John 9. Y'all remember when he was talking in John 9 about the man born blind? They said, uh, you know, are, are, are we going to do this now? He said, we work while it's day. Night comes when nobody can work. Well, here we have the same event. We're pre- presented with a problem. And they said, well, are we really going back there to fix this? He said, aren't there 12 hours of daylight? I thought a couple of things were humorous about this. One is, we think an eight-hour work day is long. Jesus saw 12 hours of daylight, said you work while it's day. <laughs> you know, He apparently had a pretty strong work ethic. The idea that he's presenting is you have only so many hours of this lifetime. Only so many hours when you can do God's work. There is a nighttime coming when nobody can work. That's death. Death will come for each one of us. Despite all of man's medical advancements, 100% of us still die. But while we are in this life, we have hours that we can work. I want you to reflect for a minute. first point that I had hoped you had gotten was that when you come to an obstacle, it should be an opportunity for God's power to be displayed. The second is, in your 12 hours of daylight, what are you spending your time doing? You worrying? You building up for yourselves things? Accumulating things? Are you spending all of your 12 hours in entertainment? See, there's only so many hours in this life when we can do the work of the kingdom. That's what our lives are about. And yet we spend an awful lot of time doing other things. Some of us numb ourselves. I mean, if you don't numb yourself in front of a TV and don't numb yourself with the aid of a prescription drug, we drink incessantly. We do whatever it takes to avoid the conscious passing of this time. Because in our hearts, we know we're not doing what we're supposed to do. We know that we're not doing the work of the kingdom. Do you remember what what Matthew said in Matthew 7? Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, shall enter my kingdom, but only he who does the will of my Father in heaven. It is built within you, David. It is built within you, Bobby, Judah, all of you. It is built within you to want to be pleasing to your Father. And when we know we are not doing that work, when our life is not about the kingdom of God, it creates a huge void. And there's a despair that is there. A purposelessness. We feel out of sorts because the Bible says God put eternity in our hearts. He put a desire for the eternal within us. And when we don't do what God has called us to do, you feel a void there. And it becomes necessary to fill it with something. And unfortunately, the things that the world offers you to fill it are like firecrackers. They go up and they're bright and they're beautiful. And they catch everyone's attention for a short time. And then you need something else. God is like the sun. He's dependable. He comes up at the same time every day and He burns so bright that the light of all of the other stars are drowned out. See, I have found in my life something that fills that void. A purpose for being on this bowl of dirt. I drive each day to do God's will. And not only does it leave you with a feeling of fulfillment, what you find is your life begins to bear fruit that makes you happy. You'll leave a legacy behind you of happy people whose lives have been changed for the glory of God. That's what being on the earth is about. Jesus had the right perspective. They said, hey man, the one you love is sick. He said, okay. 
They said, well, are we really going back to Judea? People want to kill you there. Isn't it within man to protect himself? I mean, don't you want to stay away from everything that would endanger your life? I was on the phone with somebody this morning that was amazed. They were amazed because an elderly person was spending all of their money and all of their time trying to avoid death. Boy, don't you see that all of the time. I had a grandfather who passed away. And this particular grandfather was not a lover of God. Some things happened in his family history called him to, caused him to leave church. He grew up a very, very hard man. Never ran after doctors. Never had any desire to be associated with the medical field. In the last few years of his life, he spent hundreds of thousands of dollars trying to stay alive. Why do you think that is? There was a great big void in him. He knew he was not doing God's will and it left a fear of death there. I have uh, another relative who looked at me and said, in these recent years, I've become consumed with not so much the fact that I'm going to die, but in what manner will I die? And she's particularly worried that it might be painful, all these other things. I was very happy to be able to speak with her because I believe this woman has real potential for the kingdom and it's never too late. I said, sweetheart, that's God's grace in your life. When you're a Christian, His Spirit bears witness with your spirit that you're born again. He's there as a comfort, as an aid. The fact that you do not feel that, the fact that there's a fear of death, is compelling you to reach out for Him so that you can be born again because you're not. Oh, well, I've been very religious all of my life. That's good for you. Why do you not have peace? She never met the man Jesus. Then His disciples said, or then He said to His disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you're going back there? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks at night that he stumbles, for he has no light. A very natural analogy. When you walk in the daylight, you're not stumbling. If you're walking in the will of God, you don't have to worry about tripping. You do God's work. After he said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend, Lazarus, has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. Why would Jesus refer to death as sleep? It's a temporary state. Death is not permanent even for the lost. The Bible teaches that every human being on the planet will be raised from the dead. Some will shine like the brightness of the heavens. Others will rise to be condemned and everlasting shame. The reality is mankind lives forever. The question is, what kind of state will you live forever in? In the presence of God or in outside of the presence of God? His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. <laughs> Somebody was discouraged in this church not long ago because they said, feels like I'm always stumbling. Feels like I'm always saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. And I kind of laughed. And I said, you not read the Gospels. So what do you mean? Everything that's recorded here are the apostles listening to the words of Jesus and misunderstanding and misapplying them. You know, the act of discipleship. You're all Christians in training. You are ones being disciplined by the Word of God. That's what discipleship means. The act of discipleship means that you're attempting you're attempting over and over and over and you are not getting it right all of the time. And this process is training you. It is perfecting you. It is causing you to eventually be more like Jesus. So you don't get discouraged when you trip. You think, wow, an opportunity to be more like Jesus. 
You know, they say that a famous inventor found 900 and some odd ways that the light bulb wouldn't work. So are you discouraged of all your failures? He said, no, I just found 900 and some odd ways it wouldn't work. I'm that much closer to the one that will. Matthew and I are in sales. You hear no an awful lot more than you hear yes in sales. If that weren't true, they wouldn't pay us to do it. (laughs) You have to have a certain familiarity with rejection to be in sales. And the way that most salesmen begin to cope with that is you know that after so many no's, you will eventually find a yes. So you begin to look at the no's as simply a process to get to the yes. Christians could learn from that. You know, so you didn't get it right today. That's okay. That's one day out of the way. Tomorrow you'll get it right. Eventually, we are progressing towards Jesus. I'm not preaching a message so you be condemned. So you'll look down upon your life and think all the ways you're not getting it right. You need to progress towards Jesus. And part of that is acknowledging that you don't have it all right right now. The closer you approach a light source, the more imperfections you'll see. You ladies have magnified mirrors that you look into to put on your makeup. And some of you have magnified mirrors with big light sources shining right on you. So you can see every little dimple, every little imperfection, right? Isn't that true? Not true. Y'all talk to me while I preach. You, you, you hurt my feelings. The Bible describes the Word like that. It says that the Bible is a mirror. And that if you hear the words of the Bible and walk away without putting them into practice, you're like somebody who looked at that mirror and walked away and immediately forgot what you looked like. The reason you put all of the magnification in the life is because you want to improve upon what you see. We're supposed to look at our Christian life like that. Thank you. Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then they told him, so then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Get this. Lazarus was sick. Jesus heard about it. He does not run right to Lazarus. Then Lazarus dies. And the disciples think, well, if he needs to sleep, you know, let him sleep and get better. No, he's dead, but I'm glad I wasn't there. Why? For your sake. Jesus was totally aware of the power of God. He walked around in it. He operated in it. But He rejoiced at the opportunity for others to see it at work. As Christians, when we see obstacles around us, we need to rejoice that others will get the opportunity to see God's power displayed. Jesus didn't run right away to fix the problem. In fact, He let it get worse so that the power of God could be displayed in their lives. Have you ever noticed that God is either a very poor general or He allows His people to get into tactical problems for a bigger salvation experience? I mean, what kind of general would lead, in fact, in Cecil DeMille's famous Ten Commandments movie, they quote this, Yul Brenner speaking, and he says, this God of the Hebrews is a very poor general. Do you remember why? Because Charlton Heston, who's Moses, leads all of the people right out of Egypt into a Sinai Peninsula with nothing ahead of them but the Red Sea and nothing behind them except the Egyptian army. Why would God do that? Why would He put His people in a position where there is death on the right and death on the left and no solution? So that He could present a solution and everybody would see where it came from. And what was that solution? God made a way where there was no way. He parted the Red Sea. 
as Christians, our job is to allow God to put us into positions where it looks like there is no solution on the right, no solution on the left, but we trust God and He provides it. And people see that. This attitude will allow you to embrace life's problems. Look at them confidently and say, you know what? This looks like hell on earth, but I serve the God of heaven and I believe there's going to be a way. And you know what? You come through the other side. This is why Christians are not measured by what they know. Christians are not measured by who they are. I don't care how high the stage is, how many books have been written. The measure of a Christian man is by what he has overcome, what he has persevered. That's why we love Paul the way we do. Do you love Paul because he was a handsome man? You don't know. There's not one picture that survived. Do you love Paul because he was an articulate speaker? There's not one recording, not anywhere. Do you love Paul because he was of royal, noble status? No, friends, you all love Paul because you know five times he was beaten with the rod. He'd been shipwrecked twice. He spent a night and a day in the open sea. He was snake-bitten and lived. You love Paul because he endured for the Gospel and you benefited from it. Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. But how many Christians are willing for that? How many of you would sign up and say, oh, that I might endure that others would benefit? No, we run like cowards back to the comfort of our own house and say, send someone else, Lord. That's not my calling. Well, you know what is your calling? Whatever God puts in your path tomorrow. You may not be called to the headhunter cannibals in New Guinea, but you are called to a workplace tomorrow where there will be difficulties, where there will be evils in the day. And it is our job to face those with the opportunity for God's power to be displayed. That's our job. I've heard it said since I was a young man that Christianity works fine in the church. It might work okay in a home. But Christianity had no place in the workplace. That's because Christians don't live like they should in the workplace. You cannot be a schizophrenic Christian. Oh, you can have a mental disorder and be a Christian. I've, I've seen that for years. <laughs> you cannot be the kind of Christian that has two separate lives. One professionally and one uh, privately. You cannot be an undercover Christian. And wherever you've let that compromise slip in your life, and I have many times, you must correct it. You'll feel so much better when you look at that person you've hidden your Christianity from and say, I love the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, strength, and I am so sorry that I have not shared that part of my life with you. You know what? They're amazed every time. And rarely do you get fired. And if you did, it'd be for the glory of God. You mean Jesus would want us to suffer loss for His kingdom? Can you name me one of the apostles? One of the apostles that they didn't try to martyr? They succeeded with all of them except John. They boiled him in oil and didn't kill him. Tough old bird. Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then, he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, called Didymus, said to the rest of his disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Isn't it funny? Guys, they're around him all of the time, they only understand him about half the time. Their lives are no different than yours. How many times has God spoke to you, and you thought, Oh, wow, I know what that means. I'll go there and I'll do such and such a thing. Five, ten, fifteen, twenty years later, it didn't happen. And you realize, you know, I must have misapplied what God said. 
The apostles did it all of the time and we did too. None of us have a monopoly on hearing from God. At best, Paul said, and this is Paul, the writer of the New Testament or the majority of it, we see now as through a dimly lit glass. Now, those of us in the charismatic world love to proclaim how clearly we hear from God, how powerfully we hear from God, and how life-changing it is. Friends, the truth is, we see through a dimly lit glass. And yet, and nevertheless, and irrespective of that, God still manages to use us. And I'm not discounting hearing from God. It's made all the difference in my life, and I will fight for that right. I object to the Pope, the papacy, the whole thing that tries to put a hierarchy between me and God because I have a right to hear from God myself and I don't need an institution for that. Jesus died to give me that right. That's another message. So Thomas says, hey, uh, well, let's go die with him. There's two interesting notes written in my Bible. One day I hope to pass this Bible along to my firstborn son and he'll probably get a big kick out of how much more he knows about it than his old man did. But that's okay. That's how revelation is supposed to work. You're supposed to learn in your lifetime, pass it along to your children. They start where you finished. Meaning they should finish further along, right? The two notes that he'll read one day and get a kick out of is Thomas, Thomas, always in the flesh. That's what I have written there. That's a very carnal thought. I look at Thomas' response there and I say, wow, Thomas never got it right. Thomas was always in the flesh. You know what evaded me? The second note that I wrote. Wow, Thomas is ready to die with him. Even if Thomas didn't understand, at least Thomas' heart was, if Jesus is going to die, I'll go die with him. I mean, who else said that all of the time? Who said, Lord, I'm ready to die with you? Peter. What happened when it came time? He ran. Thomas is ready to die with Jesus. I say that to say, guys, you may blow it and you may look back and say, you know, I didn't say what I should have said then. I didn't do what I should have done then. But you ought to be able to look back and see that your heart was in the right place. Thomas didn't understand this. And his words are recorded that we could laugh at. It seems stupid. But his heart was in the right place. He was willing to lose his life for Jesus. Isn't that good? I want to remind you also that in the 20th chapter of John, Thomas, who has gone down in history as doubting Thomas, is the first human being on the planet Earth who declares that Jesus is both his Lord, which means owner, controller, it's a term like sir, master, and his God, G-O-D. That's a big revelation. To step from you're the anointed one, you're the Lord, the overlord, the, the guy in control, to say you are God himself. And Thomas is the first guy to ever have said that. First guy on the planet. And we call him Doubting Thomas. See, you can choose to focus on the negative aspects of your life and on the lives of others. Or you can choose to see God's power displayed. To me, Thomas is not doubting Thomas. Thomas is the guy who first said, Lord and God. The guy who is ready to die with Jesus. See, I think it's a whole lot easier to go through life focusing on the positive things. And this is not a self-help message. This is not Zig Ziglar or somebody else telling you how to live a better life. I'm telling you how Christianity works. All of the self-help messages are people that have gleaned aspects of Christianity and have focused on them. And that's good. I'm glad for them. They're out there. They're doing that. I'm telling you the way that Jesus lived. Can you show me one verse that says Jesus was ever depressed? That's not because He took Xanax. Jesus had the power of God operating in Him and it gave Him the right perspective on every situation. 
And what does the Bible tell you you have operating in you? You've made, you, you have that same thing, that same deposit in you. The Bible says you've tasted of the powers of the coming age. You've seen that the Lord is good. You think the writer would say that if he met Christians that we know? I had lunch with a guy here recently that described his church and his denomination as the meanest, nastiest people he'd ever come into contact with. Right up here in Williams Christ, thousand-member church, he personally described his denomination as the meanest and nastiest people on the planet. said there was no other group of people on the planet meaner or nastier. In his office, like a politician, had pictures of him with Jimmy Carter, him with George Bush, him with Billy Graham. That was an interesting one. Him with world leaders, a secretary of state, all around his office. Because you could tell as we walked into his office, Matthew and I were there, and he began to show, oh, this is me with so-and-so. It's all for the show of men. The same way an insurance salesman who played college football put his college football pictures in his office. So people will associate you with something great and want to be around you. This man had pictures around his office, and one of the pictures was him preaching in a flat jacket. You know what I mean? Flat jacket, bulletproof vest. I thought, wow, look at that. The guy went somewhere dangerous. You know where it was? His denomination's year-end business meeting. He began to tell the story, this is me preaching in a flat jacket. I said, really? He said, yeah, uh, we had 12,000 members come that year. We were only expecting 2,500. It's because it was a controversial issue. It was held in Waco. And as I began to preach, I had so many death threats that we had two men there assigned to bodyguard me and... Uh, I wore a flat jacket. I thought to myself, wow, not only might a Christian be martyred, but from members of his own denomination. Does that sound like Christianity to you? But there's a thousand people up there. A thousand people sitting under that man as a pastor. As he talked about retiring at the age of 59, I said, oh, come on, man. Moses didn't start till he was 80. you got many years left. He said, Moses wasn't married to my wife. Does that sound like a job to you? Or does that sound like a calling from God? Oh my gosh, I'd present to you that's typical. I'm not here to tear down that denomination. I didn't even tell you who it is. But that is so far from the attitude Jesus is displaying here. That is so far from Christianity that I don't care how many people are there. I'd rather stay in this garage. Yes, and you, Matthew. I appreciate that. Then Thomas called Didymus said to the rest of his disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. There's volumes written about these four days. Some say it's because in Jewish mysticism, that's probably a bad word, in Jewish spiritual thought, that the spirit didn't actually leave the body for several days. You know, I don't know whether that's true or not, but I do know he was there long enough that his body had begun to stink. Now, friends, God forbid should Brad drop over dead. If a minute goes by, two minutes goes by, Mandy slides the air conditioner over here like a crash cart and she shocks him, right? And he comes back, what do we say? He was resuscitated, right? If five, six minutes goes by and we, you know, we keep amping up the, the paddles and we shock him and shock him and shock him, he was resuscitated. You might get by with that for ten minutes. But if he's been dead four days, he's pretty well just dead, isn't he? I think Jesus allowed him to be dead for as long as he was to remove all doubt. This is not a coma. This is, this is not some state that the medical science at the time was not able to properly identify. It's not a fainting spell. 
He's dead and he has begun to decay. That's pretty well dead. Okay? He's dead. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. And many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. In the loss of their brother. These women in their mind had already experienced the loss. They're not anticipating it. They're not looking forward in the future going, oh no, what if this happens? In their minds, He's already gone. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet Him. But Mary stayed home. Why do you think that is? Isn't it interesting? Two people hear the same report. One stays home, the other goes. Why do two people hear a gospel message and one leaves invigorated, excited, seeing a person in life and the other leaves condemned and beat down and they heard the same message? Why are two children raised in the same home and one child leaves the home and thinks, wow, God gave me everything necessary to prepare me for my calling. The other bemoans their life as horrid and what bad parents they had and why everything is wrong with them. What's different? I tell you what's different, the soil of their heart. The Bible teaches us that there are four kinds of hearts. Not four kinds of soil. Not four kinds of people that can be saved. There are four categories of a heart that can be saved. Some are soft and ready to receive seed. Some have rocky ground. Some are paved over. And some are just great soil. They're all recorded. Four kinds. Well, two women hear the same report. Hey, the friend Jesus. He's here. One rushes right out to him. The other sits at home. She's probably just waiting for the television broadcast of Jesus. huh? How many people are sitting at home rather than being in church today? Oh, they can get it on TV, right? They, they can get it on TV. Well, what if their church needs them? Maybe, maybe it's not just that they need to hear what the pastor says. Maybe the church needs them. See, I don't come here in the mornings just to give you something. I come here because we need each other. This is a symbiotic relationship. The people on your right and left miss you when you're not here. We look to each other for support. Could you hear it on tape? Sure. But where would that leave us? When Mary, I'm sorry, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. The first response is a normal one, isn't it? If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. That could be the response of a lost person or a saved person, huh? If Why did God let this happen? If only God had been here, then this would have been fine. Why did this happen? But her response didn't stop there. She said, if you had been here, you could have fixed this. But even now, I know God will give you what... In her heart, she had already experienced the loss. We already established that. He was dead. He was gone. But she knew that because Jesus was there, whatever He asked, He could get. That's the voice of faith. Faith doesn't deny that you're sick. That's a ridiculous teaching that somebody made up. Faith doesn't deny that you're broke. It does not deny that you have problems. It simply looks at the problem and says, but even now, God will provide a way. This is how Abraham in Romans 4 can look at his body, look at his wife's body and say, wow, we're almost as good as dead. And yet, God said, we're going to have a son. 
So without wavering through unbelief, he could reason in his heart that God was able to perform what he had promised. That is faith. I would subject to you this morning that Martha had that faith. She didn't understand how. She didn't understand why. She just knew that the guy who was the answer was there. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, before we get there, she says, I know you can get whatever you want. She's there with excitement. She ran out to meet him, though she had experienced loss. She didn't understand how it could happen, but she knew something could happen. And Jesus said, your brother will rise again. Her response, I know he'll rise at the last day. Every Jew who was a believing Jew, not just a member of Israel, knew that there would be a resurrection. It was the hope of Israel. We've been through those Scriptures many times. She didn't say, oh, I know He's in heaven. She didn't say, oh, uh, it's okay, I know He's in a better place. Isn't that the things you're used to hearing though? So-and-so died. Well, they're in heaven. They're in a better place. Their hope was not in that. Their hope was in the resurrection. She had her focus on a day when death would be crushed. What she was missing was Jesus' answer though. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in Me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in Me will never die. Do you believe this? She said, yes, Lord. When Jesus said, I am the resurrection, He's saying, I am the cause. I am the event. I am the catalyst for what you're waiting for. It's Me. You don't have to wait for something in the future. You don't have to look forward to something. I am the power of life and I'm here. And this is as simple as going back to Genesis, which I promised myself I wouldn't do. It was promised in Genesis 3.15 and 16. Somebody's going to come through you who will crush the head of the enemy. They understood that somebody was coming to right the wrong. Somebody was coming to fix the problem. And Jesus is saying, I am that guy. And just to clear it up, He didn't just say He was the resurrection. He said, I am the life. I am the power that you are waiting for. I am the Messiah, the Anointed One. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she said to Him. I believe that you are the Christ. That means the Anointed One. The Son of God who was to come into the world. And after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here. That's funny. She addresses Jesus as the Lord, the Christ, the Son of God, the One who was to come into the world. When talking to Mary, she talks about Him as a teacher. I wonder if there was a difference in perception between Martha and Mary. Do you think maybe Mary just saw Jesus as a good teacher, a friend, but Martha knew He was something more? When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to Him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but was still at the place Martha had met Him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw Him, she fell at His feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Is that similar to what Martha said? Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Is that almost verbatim what Martha had said? But what is missing? What is missing there? The statement that says, but even now, you'll get whatever you ask for from God. See, I would just suppose that Martha 
had had more interaction with Jesus. Martha understood more about who Jesus was. Mary liked Him. Mary even loved Him. Thought He was a great rabbi but didn't understand what he was all about. And she hadn't had the benefit of having this conversation with him that Martha just had. I am the resurrection and I am the life. But she's going to watch what happens. Y'all just remember that. Suppose with me for a moment that Martha is saved and Mary is on her way to salvation. Just let it enter the realm of possibility as we read. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? Why would Jesus be troubled? Jesus knew he was sick. He waited for him to die. Why would Jesus be troubled? Why do we get to the shortest verse in the Bible here in another verse that says, and Jesus wept? What's he crying about? What's he crying about? I mean, he waited for this. He said it was an opportunity for God's power to be displayed. So what's he crying about? What is the God of the universe weeping for? He sees his friends and they're hurting. I'm not suggesting to you that as a Christian, when obstacles come in your life, it's not painful. I'm not suggesting that you walk around with this smile on your face, super spiritual era about you that you feel no pain and the hurts of this world don't hurt you. Even Jesus cried. But it doesn't stop there. He was moved in compassion. It hurt Him that they were hurting even though He was the answer. But He was not powerless to do something about it. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, how he loved him. But some of them said, could not the one who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? They remembered that Jesus had taught this guy was born blind. Not because of sin, but he was born blind that God's power would be displayed. So they're there and they're thinking, Lazarus is sick and he's died. Jesus opened that blind man's eyes. Couldn't he have done something about this? They relate the two events, but in their minds, now that the guy's dead, it's too late, right? We've already experienced the loss. So that would mean this is a greater proof, wouldn't it? See, these proofs in the Bible escalate. They escalate from the man who was on his mat for 38 years to a man who was born blind. One is, is powerful proof, but the next one's even more powerful proof. I mean, they said, who had ever heard of opening man's eyes who had been born blind? Now we're stepping up another notch to somebody who had been dead four days. With many convincing proofs, Jesus testified about His power. He testified so that we would believe. Then the Jews said, see how He loved Him? We read that. Verse 38. Jesus once more, deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, He said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor. For He has been there four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank You that You have heard Me. I knew that You always hear Me. But I have said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe You have sent Me. When He said this in a loud voice, when he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take the grave clothes off and let him go. 
as we face problems in our Christian life, not that Jesus doesn't care. It's not that He didn't hear the report. It's not that He's slow in coming to you. He may have allowed you to be in the position you're in for as long as He did so that the miracle would be that much bigger when He pulled it off. Just like His friend Lazarus, who He loved, but He delayed in coming to. The problem with us is the longer we're in a situation, the more hopeless it looks like. I've been this way 38 years. I was born this way. I've been this way always. It's just who I am. It can't change. Lord, there's a bad odor. I'm not sure you want to pull away this rock. In fact, sometimes we'll hang on to the rock. You know, not show the Lord that part of our life. Not want anyone to see it. Oh, if they only knew. Whatever it is. The response is always the same from Jesus. Take away the stone and He says, come out. The same way God called Israel out of Egypt. The same way God has called you out of this corrupt world. He speaks to us and says, come out. It always requires you to do something. Life from the dead always requires you to do something. Nobody ever received anything from God sitting back waiting for God to do it. Everything that you receive from God requires you to do something. He says, Lazarus, come out. And I've heard preachers say for years, and I think it's probably true. He said, Lazarus, come out. Because if he had just said, come out, there's no telling how many dead people would have walked out of those tombs. Lazarus, come out. Then what was the next thing? Take off the grave clothes and let him go. Too often in Christianity, after Jesus has pulled away the stone to reveal the bad odor of our life, after He has said, come out, we walk around in that dead guy's clothes. We walk around talking and acting like, well, I'm a Christian now, but when I was lost, I'd have slapped that guy if he had said that. I'm a Christian now, but when I was lost, boy, I used to like to party. I'm a Christian now, but when I was lost, I did thus and so. And we wear around the dead guy's clothes that stink. And so everybody goes, is he alive or not? Is he born again or not? We need to put away the dead man's clothes in our lives. You need to put away the former things. The Bible says they are secret and shameful things. We are to walk in a new life in Christ. Now, I wanted to read you more, but we're going to have to close here. The solution that the Pharisees come to with this is he's got an outstanding miracle. He keeps doing these miracles. And you know what? If He keeps this up, the Romans are going to come and take away our place. They're going to take away our positions. They've been waiting on the political Messiah to come and overthrow the Romans. And when it was clear Jesus would not do that, that was not why He was here, they didn't want Him to be embraced as the Messiah for fear that the Romans would come in and crush this spiritual rebellion and take away the Pharisees' places of honor. Remember I told you to suppose for a minute that... Martha was saved and Mary wasn't. And the reason Martha runs out to meet Jesus and says, but even now I believe that you can do, God will hear you and you can do whatever you want about this. But Mary doesn't. She stays back. She only calls Him teacher. And when she does say, Lord, it's not necessarily, it's in the sense of somebody greater than you, but not necessarily God. She says, if you had been here, He wouldn't have died. Almost like it's your fault He's dead. Right? I believe that when Mary saw the dead guy, come to life, and she heard the reports from her sister, she understood for the first time in her life really what Jesus is. Jesus really is that power of life that is coming to pull you out of death. I believe that for the first time she understood when she saw an obstacle in her brother's death or in the man born blind and God's power displayed to it, 
that when she began to think about the teachings of Jesus and Him laying down His life, she understood that in His death, He would come out and bring life out. That's why in John 12:1 we see in Bethany, in the home of a man named Simon, Jesus eating at a feast. And a woman comes in and breaks a jar of anointed perfume on Jesus' feet. Anoints His head, anoints His feet, anoints His whole body and cries at His feet. And Jesus said, this is a beautiful thing you've done for me. And I read it to you in Matthew 26. And wherever the Gospel story is told, it will be told. Mary understood after seeing in someone's life death and a resurrection. And she understood who Jesus was and what He was doing. And so she took something worth a year's wages and came and laid it at Jesus' feet. I would submit to you that the same way that Mary, who had been hearing the same message as Martha had, but did not get born again until she saw a death-to-life experience, that if you want people around you to get saved, if you want to impact the world for Jesus, you have to be willing to be the Lazarus. Your life was laid down. You were raised to walk a new life, shedding the dead clothes. And then the Marys of the world that have been kind of hanging out watching will see and they will come and pour out all they have at Jesus' feet because they saw and have heard the testimony, David was dead and is now alive. Bobby was dead and is now alive. Matthew was dead and is now alive. Now, as you think about that, if you were ever baptized, that's what that was for. You were supposed to be proclaiming to the heavens and to all the people on the earth, this person is dying, going beneath the waters, the watery grave being pulled out to walk a new life in Christ. This was to be a testimony, an initiation for all of your relatives, all of your friends, all of your family, for everybody to see. Watch this. This guy will be new in the power of Christ. And that in watching that, in watching that example, in watching your life, they would want what you have. In thinking about that, you've got to go back to Jesus' attitude. There's only 12 hours of daylight. You only have so much time to live out this example. You only have so much time to do the work of the Father. You need to decide today whether or not your life will be one that affects the Marys of this world. They know about Jesus. They're acquainted with Jesus, but they haven't given Him their all because they've never really seen it happen. They've never really understood it. I want to be somebody's life that is a catalyst for change. That's why we named this ministry Life-Changing Ministries. Let's not send the world the confusing message. Let's dedicate our lives 100% to Jesus all of the time. Let's not just embrace Him as a teacher. Let's not just embrace Him as Lord. Let's embrace Him as the example of life, meaning that we pattern ours after His. Let's look for the Marys of this world, even right here in our own subdivision, that they might get born again and pour out all they have to honor Jesus. You know, this woman may have come in later than her sister, but she's really the famous one now, isn't she? Everywhere the Gospel is told, the story of what she did is told with it. And John testifies to that by saying, this Mary is the same one who anointed Jesus' feet before He ever told you she did it. Isn't that great? You ever heard somebody say that Mother Mary, the other Mary, the Mary of Jesus is blessed and that we should honor her? Just like this one. Exact same thing. When they hear about what you did, Mary, all generations will call you blessed. That's what the angel told her. 
So if you ever think, wow, we're not honoring Mary, the mother of Jesus, enough, you honor her in the same way that you honor this Mary, the sister of Lazarus. Wherever the Gospel story is told, you tell of what she did as well. See, it's the same exact statement, but that's part of the other teaching I'll tell you all after church. Okay, y'all stand to your feet. Let's pray.